Hi, and welcome to Figure of Speech, a program from WRBH, where every week you can meet local poets and writers from the New Orleans community and listen to them share their work. Today we'll be hosting a conversation between two poets, Henry Goldcamp and Dr. Peter Cooley. Dr. Cooley was the 2015-2017 Louisiana State Poet Laureate and is retired from Tulane University, where he was a senior Mellon professor in humanities, professor of English, and the director of creative writing. He's also taught at the University of Wisconsin-Green Bay, Western Michigan University in Prague, and the University of New Orleans, among others. He is the author of 10 books of poetry, including Night Bus to the Afterlife, Divine Margins, A Place Made of Starlight, and his most recent publication, World Without Finishing, from Carnegie Mellon Press, 2018. He was also the poetry editor of the North American Review and is currently poetry editor of Christianity and Literature. His poems have appeared in over 700 magazines and in more than 100 anthologies. He is the recipient of a Pushcart Prize and of the Marble Fawn First Place Prize in Poetry given by the Faulkner Society. Henry Goldcamp has appeared on the show a few times as well, and his recent work appears or is forthcoming in Indiana Review, Diagram, South Carolina Review, and the McNeese Review, among others. He is the grateful recipient of the Ryan Chikizola Prize for Poetry from the University of New Orleans, and he is also a member of the class, a New Orleans-based group of poets. Henry currently lives in Louisiana with his small, lovely family, and I'll let him take it from here. Welcome, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Figure of Speech. I'm here with Dr. Peter Cooley, well-known poet in the area. His new book just came out from Carnegie Mellon Press last year, World Without Finishing. He'll, he's here with us, and he'll be reading selected poems from his new collection and new poems from a future collection called After Dark. Peter Cooley grew up in Detroit, born in 1940, he studied often in the Midwest, got his master's from the University of Chicago, and then went through the uh, famous writer's workshop in Iowa where he received his PhD. Peter, welcome. Thank you. Reading through this newest collection, it wasn't so far into it before a mental Venn diagram popped into my head. One circle being life, the next sort of the afterlife, and then suddenly more of these started popping up. Midnight and morning, you most definitely are a morning person, I think it would be safe to say sun and moon, shadow and light, mortal and immortal. And then as I kept getting deeper and deeper to the collection until the end, these circles sort of overlapped one another and were covering one another. And I couldn't tell where one began, where one ended. It seems to me that it's almost as if light and darkness are one and the same in this collection. It's something that you've been, I think, untangling and figuring out in many of your other works. And I would say that these circles we're moving and being pushed over one another through prayer or possibly even just the medium of prayer, which would be air or light, which you seem to be just perfectly obsessed with. You mentioned in other interviews that the Gulf South, your home now for 30 years. 43, actually. 43. Uh -huh. So many decades, it drew you to this town because the humidity accentuates that light, deepens the hues, brightens the color. And so it just it just shines through in all of these poems in the new collection. Of course, I agree with everything you said. I, I appreciate your observations. But naturally, all of those things were not consciously thought about by me. They were just intuitions, and they came about through the writing process. I think everything you said is true about the light and the dark and the prayer. But in writing a poem, I just write the poem. 
Right. And your writing process is often started in the morning, correct? Yes. That's been the process for quite some time now to get up and have a cup of coffee and start writing right away. Now, many, many of those poems, no one's ever going to see. Right. Um, I'm not even going to see them at the end of the week because they're so bad. They have to go immediately into the recycling bin. But others I pull out and work on. Right. The, the ones that we sort of feel feel it out and, and keep going into. Yes. Well, it, I definitely noticed it after the fact, after the collection was all put together, and I really appreciated it. And this week, I've been sort of looking at light in a new way. So let's get our listeners a little taste of that, and maybe we can start with the title poem. Okay. The title poem is an acrostic poem or a poem written about a work of art. And curiously enough, this is the only poem about a photograph I've ever written, and I don't know why that is. I was fascinated for some time, and I still am, by the last photograph that appears in the famous photography book, The Family of Man. It's of these two children walking away into the distance. And that's that the basis for this poem and the subject matter of the poem. But the subject is, of course, about much more than that. World Without Finishing. At the end of The Family of Man, the last photograph a boy and girl, probably siblings, five and three maybe, pose backs to us as they enter a forest in soft focus, the leaves silver, shivering, toward expectations beyond the scope of dawn. Beneath it, a world to be born under their footsteps, Saint-Jean Perse. Reader, I wish I could speak to you without such illustration of what occurs to me at dawn now, in my seventies, but this one image is what I turn to, stuporous and half-awake, my aching hand about my coffee cup, assurance the body I am carrying is a gift, one I will give back after the last days. That we live again is certain, that our death is always imminent. This is the breath I draw, of faith recurrent, as the sun now dappling my back window, dappling my front at dusk. The children walk off. They are any one of us come back. They walk toward their death. Immortal, you and I, soon to be born, rush out to enter them again. That poem is, or rather, well, the poem and the photograph are both very arresting. I looked up the photograph, and it's almost as if the woods are almost circular. It's sort of all-encompassing the children, yet the path that they're walking on is very well-worn. So you sort of have this idea of many other generations or people, even animals, which uh, occurs throughout this collection as well, a lot of animal imagery. Yes, yes, um, yes. Which one of the things that I really appreciated about this collection is the sort of blending of these sort of romantic animals, the mockingbird, the nightingale, and then we also sort of have a touch uh, of the southern gothic, just a touch, <laughs> worms, a split toad, a dead cat, roadkill, and this is all in the same collection, so it's a really nice texture to that. This title of the book and of this eponymous poem it reminds me of another poem you wrote. I believe it's called Poem Choosing to Remain Unfinished. Uh-huh, uh-huh. It yeah. almost, I almost thought that this collection could almost be plucked from that book, and that sort of speaks to those spheres that are opening up. Where does life and death begin? Are they actually different? Um, the last line of that poem 
uh, is something along the lines of, in the first miracle is darkness, oh God. And I think that that's prevalent here. Would you like to read another one? Sure, I appreciate those observations. And again, as I said, um, I can't say those things as articulately as you can because I wrote the book. Right. Right. I really cannot. I really cannot. Maybe the next one I planned to read was Company of the Motel Room. I'm not sure how well it fits in with what we've been talking about, but we'll make it fit in, won't we? Yes, we will. Company of the Motel Room. Red shoe under the bed, black sock nestled inside it. Burn mark the size of a man's thumb on the nightstand. What has been ended here? Or what begun, since from such origins no long continuance could stay itself? As my long marriage testified by its repeated passages of middling weather. Tracery of cigarette ash on this windowsill. Who has stood where I stand before or after love, asking why he came here? Why this blue spruce I'm looking on, unflinchable, resists the winds as people never can? Or why this highway encircling me? alone again, my conference done, tomorrow I go home, drive some to lives of rich desserts, some lives of stolen crumbs, and for me, neither. Home. I have to find a small squall there. Start one. I'm interested in how this poem came about, and I believe that I read somewhere that it sort of served as a it's a poem about distraction. Is it? Is that what it's about? Is... <laughs> I'm not trying to be silly. No, I know. Uh, I'm, I'm curious, though, if you could sort of speak to... What it came from? Um, I think it's a poem about many things. I think since my wife died uh, 10 months ago and we were married for 52 years, I think it's a poem about being married for a long time. Hmm. And the speaker is wondering why this motel room seems to be the site of affairs and little that take place there. That's what he's wondering. And so he's wondering at the end of the poem if he can just go home and start a fight with his wife in order to keep things going, keep things stirred up. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I'm trying to say at the end of the poem. I think that's actually. wonderful. Small squalls, certainly. Yeah, start a... a small squall. Not a, you know, not a big fight. Just start a small squall and keep, keep the fires burning, so Absolutely. to speak, right? To switch metaphors there. Actually, I'll, if you want to know where the poem came from, at the time that my parents were ill and getting ill and dying in the late 90s, and they died in the year 2000, my mother, my father, and my sister, all the family I came from, all died in the same year, in six-month intervals. I kept staying at this one motel near the old folks' home where they lived, and they kept putting me back in the same room. I don't know why. Maybe they were just they didn't know what to do with me. <laughs> And curiously enough, there was a couple who seemed to be having a love affair that were always there on the weekends when I was visiting, having a fight in the room adjoining. That's how the poem started. That was the source of the room. And then I did find, I did find something in the room. I found a shoe or a sock. I can't remember which it was. And that made me wonder what had gone on in the room. Mm. So that's where the poem came from. How faithful that that uh, affair couple kept coming up whenever it, you were in town. Exactly. Isn't that weird? It that is was very so weird. weird. That was so weird. It I seems... mean, poetry is made out of a series of coincidences, isn't it? It is. But you have to have details to make the poem, of course. So speaking of a series, 
the next poem, Windows. Windows Suhetsu, that yeah, one, one, I have two of them. Suhetsu is a Japanese form which allows someone like myself who gets tied up in the, saying the same stuff over and over again to open up. Uh, you can write in prose. This poem is written in prose. You have numbered sections, and you can have very discontinuous statements which somehow tie together, and that's what's going on in this poem. I am fascinated by the form, and for me, the form is very challenging since I like to tie things up. Mm -hmm. This is in 13 different parts. I think I chose to have it 13, too, because of 13 being a special number. Mm -hmm. What else is in the poem? Um, I read The Duchess of Melfi when I was in college. There's the image of the glass house and that that stays with me. I was reading the Brothers Karamazov while I was writing this poem. I did go to Sun Bushnell Congregational Sunday School when I was a kid. I hated it. <laughs> I just was converted to the Episcopal Church when I was 30 mm. and was baptized and confirmed when I was 30. I studied French, and so I don't, I'm not a good French student, but I like to throw in some French words, so that appears here. That's enough. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> Windows who hits him. One. Windows. Brothers I never had. Sisters sane, clear, unlike my mad, abusive sister, dead. Two. A bluey song. French words I like to taste. Etoncelle malgré. I like them all, stippled on the tongue. Three. Always here, windows, even invisible, standing beside me, walking, running, windows of the levee road. Windows, eyes of the soul. Who is seeing whom? Four. Blake said, cleanse the pains of perception. Door windows. Break down every door and set clear vision there. Wings, then. Wind and wing. Five. Blake went to the store, went to the door naked. Who looked on him? Genius he was. Mike, who knows more than, about Blake than I, said he did this only once. Maybe even I could do it once. Six. Once is enough for everything. I have seen, though, down my God's faces again and again, which can open almost anywhere. Walking the levee. Windows, but transparent. My window, translucent. Seven. God always watching us as they teach in Sunday school. The soul a window, always watching God. Eight. Prose is a clear river. Poetry a muddied lake afraid of too much clarity. Nine, to be seen and to see, the moment and its passing into moments, and then a life is over, like the mayfly's day. Ten, travel is only new language. Shall I go to Russia just because I'm reading the Brothers K? Sometimes I know just how dumb I am. Eleven, but I won't be learning Russian or even trying. Czech was a bust. I couldn't understand a word they spoke. It sounded like phlegm, gold phlegm, but nevertheless phlegm they spit at me. Twelve. Why can't I just travel around my room, like Dickinson? But she had a bigger room than I do in every way. Thirteen. I'd like the glass house they talk about in the Duchess of Malfi. All windows, all ready for any weather, rain or scorch, a greenhouse, a terrarium, 
a room we can walk around in, the son and I, walk and talk. The tenth section brings about one of my absolute favorite proclivities that I find in your poems. And that line, sometimes I know just how dumb I am. Uh-huh, uh-huh. You grant a lot of space to human error, but to put it even better, the dumbness and stupidity that we sort of have with us at all times. And it's to a point where it almost elevates itself sort of in the same way of shadows and light. You can't have knowledge or a sort of wisdom without the stupidity and that it actually is a very integral part of humanity and that it's a, it's a wonderful thing, actually. I think it's the unknowing. I think, and Heidegger talks about that. Mm. Uh, I mean, the, the unknowing is a kind of knowing. But now so much of my life has been spent going to school, going to graduate school, and then teaching and making which in which you make everything conscious, right? So I'm very aware of that as, as a limitation in the way of knowing. Mm. Galbraith Canal said once in an interview, the academic world is based on talk. And I thought, oh, how cynical. But he's right. And there's much more beyond talk, isn't there? There is. Yeah. There is. Which maybe that's a perfect moment to, to move into the next poem. <laughs> and it's more than talk. Please. Obad? Mm-hmm. Obad. I like Obad's uh, morning poems because they are a kind of beginning with the light and the Obad was traditionally a poem written about the parting of lovers at the beginning of the day. I play with that, and there's frequently not a lover leaving in my poems, but I play with that sense of departure in my poems. Obad. When I cry, I become another man. I join Achilles sulking in his tent, Hamlet before his father's ghost and Lear, undoing his last button, then another last. I go out, the elements conspiring to help me find my birthplace among them, the rain watching, the sun among the clouds, appearing only to disappear, appear. Even these dawn birds, I always cry, first light, they do have their, they too have their answering in chorus. If only I bore their monotonies, my notes, improvisations always underfoot. The sky gives off, heaven dying, rising. I wouldn't find myself then among these leaves. It's morning, my bower, magnolias, waxen one, dividing the sky as it falls through the sun. If I could sing one corresponding note, just one bar, no, I'd want a symphony, just one. The sky clears, then reforms again. It's time I went in. I'll be something new. I talked myself into when the sky fell. I think you can tell from my poems that I write line by line by line. The line is very important to me as a unit of measure, and I want every line to be, if possible, interesting in and of itself. Now, that doesn't always happen, but right, that's what the, I try the, for. Ezra Pound's ideal of every poem a line, or every, every line of poem. Every line of poem, yes, yes, yes. yes. Um, that's what that Pound said. Uh-huh. And in that, in that note of the Obad and Lovers Departing, um, the, the next two poems uh, that we'll read while we have the time is from a forthcoming collection that you're working on right now, Afterlife. Uh, after dark. After dark. Excuse me. Uh, um, excuse me. I'm blending so many of your themes. Yes, I know. I know. Uh, uh, well, my as I said, my wife died March fifteenth. Uh, 
of this last year, and I walked into the living room and found her dead. Uh, she, her back was hurting. She wanted to sleep in the living room, and when I walked in there on March 15, she was dead. So I thought, I can't write about this, but I realized then that's what I've said about every single book I've written. I can't write about this. There's always this resistance. I started writing, and I'm writing more and more and more and more. This will be a whole book. This poem was based on something I actually did, which was sort through Jackie's clothes and give them away. Blues note. In memory, Jacqueline Cooley, 1944 to 2018. Today, I gave away your winter clothes. You will not face another January beside me. Pull up the scrim of that ice-blue parka hood against the wind, a skin I'm still maneuvering. My mother, father, sister, aunt, grandmother, grandfather wind, all my dead. Ice-blue, the color of your tongue that morning I found you, splaying the living room couch. After you left our bed, your back on fire, stenosis claiming your spine, your shoulders, arms. A corresponding blue, this raincoat, too, a shade deeper, a London fog we bought in London on a whim since we were Londoning and knew the price inflated just for us. How could we not indulge in such a blue? Today I'll give away your spring clothes, then summer's lush pastels, and then your falls. Why do I tell myself I can diminish even for a second, this soul's wounding blue, bruising my legs, my shoulder blades, my arms. Thank you for that. I think that that really speaks to what you were saying of you told yourself you wouldn't write about it, and then that line sort of stands out now in a, in a second meaning, how, how could we not indulge in such a blue and so now you've you've dove right in and are, are going to create an entire book from this loss. It's so visceral, this poem, to think of those sort of leftover relics of the those who've passed away that, that have died. And and here you are sort of unbur the speaker unburdening himself with these remnants. I wonder, is it a completely different you mentioned before that that year in two thousand, um, when your family just was passing away all within the year, your father, your mother, your sister. Is it somehow in some strange way easier now that you've experienced that? No, it's harder. it's harder. Oh, it's harder. Um, my sister was very ill uh, and had emphysema and I knew she wouldn't last that long. And my parents were 93 and 91. So I saw, I saw it coming. Also, I was going up there all the time because they were failing. No, this is much harder. This is sudden. This is much harder. Yes. And this is my wife also. This is much harder. Yes. Much, much harder. Do I want, you want me to read this one or? I think so. And I think that, uh, yeah, let's, let's read the, the next one. Do I have and, time? And, and the that... final one. Yeah. Okay. All right. Now this poem again is written about my wife and it, this, the experience in this poem is imaginary. I made the whole thing up. I, I was looking through her jewelry and giving a few pieces of jewelry away to my two, two daughters. That does not appear in the poem at all. Instead, there's an imaginary experience with the speaker and his wife and his feeling he didn't really know her, which appears in the poem. And of course, I did know my wife, but then I think when she died, I didn't know her. We have all these different feelings 
when someone dies. I knew you completely. I didn't know you. Where are you? Are you here? We have many, many paradoxical feelings, and I guess some of that appears in the poem. The Two of Us. In Memory, Jacqueline Cooley, 1944, 2018. Among the few pieces of jewelry I excavated from a single box were your engagement pearls, the antique locket I gifted you one Christmas, and where you glued a photo of our children with me opposite. I found two keys I'd never seen. I pulled them out, laid them across our bed, over the model bedspread where the sky at the east window came and went and came, the rhythm blue, improvisational. A jailer's turnkey, silver, palm-sized. The second, corroded green and purple. Dumbly, I tried both keys on the front door, the back, even my car, the ancient desk you bought me with its lock I've never locked. I pulled on my jogging suit, the black and white you gifted me, then said I was a panda, a penguin. Remember that both of us doubled up? Why did you die? I'll never know, will I? I ran, I ran to the river, my best friend, the Mississippi taking its course below the levee, the end of our street. Corroded green, the obstreperous, polluted, open-jawed stupor of the tides, stupor of the purple skies reflected there, readied themselves. They've taken in everything. I thought about the two of us, love, what I'll never know, then hurled both sets of keys into the water. Hmm. Now, I do live near the Mississippi. Yeah. I, I, at Jefferson <laughs> Parish, I've been near Oxnard Hospital. I do live, the Mississippi is at the end of my street, that's true. But I never found keys. I never ran to the end of the street and threw them in. Uh, but I do have a black and white jogging sh- suit my wife bought me. Some of the poem is true. Right. Some of the poem is true. In the, the panda and penguin? Uh... Um, I, yeah, yeah, I said I look stupid in it. No, yeah, that's kind of, I mean, yeah. That's, it's really, that's true. It's, uh-huh. that moment uh, you gifted me, then I said I was a panda a penguin, uh, remember? Uh, uh-huh. That seems to have really cracked the speaker of the poem mm, open yeah. to the point mm. of, and it sort of reminds me of what Retke said, emotion <laughs> is emotion. And mm. so the, then the speaker uh-huh. is jogging, and then we have mm-hmm. this big moment uh-huh. of the keys. Yeah. And it's so uh, interesting, the different ways that you can take that final action of hurling both sets of keys into the water. The lock, which there's many locks throughout this poem, suddenly seem to lose their power. If, if the holder of the key no longer cares what the key goes to, but at the same time, there's sort of a resistance in a, in, in, uh, uh, that that's what you talk again about that that dumbness dumbly mm-hmm. i tried both uh-huh, keys uh-huh. which is another wonderful image of <laughs> even my car it's ridiculous right uh, completely it's completely. It, but that's what we sort of do in these times of of mourning and things uh the the logical becomes quite absolutely natural. that was certainly what i was going for there of course everyone knows his or her own car keys right we would never believe that they would be some mysterious keys um but in the state of the state of grief we don't know what we're doing Right. With these two poems, as we finish here, you said once in an interview and spoke of the poem as a type of temporary immortality. And in that paradox, uh-huh. what, what do you think that this new collection that you're working on now, After Dark, is attempting to accomplish within that sort of paradox? 
Well, it's trying to find my wife again, certainly. And also it's trying to bring her back. So it can't, it's doing what it can't do, right? It's attempting what it can't do. But we know that art does that, doesn't it? It, it attempts to do what it can't do. It attempts to preserve. It attempts to have its own kind of immortality. And, of course, and it does. I mean, it does have its own kind of immortality, right? It does. Even if it's only someone listening to this hour when we're talking, that's a form of immortality, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much for coming in today. Oh, thank you. I enjoyed this. And I think that, uh, yeah, to all the listeners out there, stay immortal, (laughs) attempt to do the impossible, and we'll catch you next time. Thanks, Peter. Thank you. Thank you. That was writer Henry Goldcamp in conversation with Dr. Peter Cooley, who was the 2015 through 2017 Louisiana State Poet Laureate, as well as retired professor from Tulane University. Dr. Cooley's books are available at Garden District Bookshop and Octavia Books in New Orleans and are on Amazon.com. You can find more information about him on the Academy of American Poets website, which is located at m.poets.org. And that's our show. You've been listening to Figure of Speech, a community poetry and writing program from WRBH. Tune in every Saturday at 1 p.m. and every Monday at 9 p.m. for more great New Orleans writing. Thanks again to Henry and Dr. Cooley for their time, and thank you for listening.